0: Mm-hmm. Alright, well it is good to be with you here this morning. I know it's uh, a little warm, uh, but uh, I trust that we'll be able to, to have a good time uh, here together. Try not to be distracted by my hair blowing in the breeze of this fan uh, up here. It's very. This is like a, the pocket of heat up here uh, on the stage. But uh, I would invite you to, to turn with me uh, to Psalm 17. Now we're continuing our, uh, our study through uh, the Psalms. Uh, And that's where we land uh, this morning, and as you're you're turning there, some of you may have heard uh, about a a video that was released uh, back uh, on July 1st. It was a video that was posted uh, to YouTube uh, by the the San Francisco uh, Gay Men's Chorus, Uh, and it was a a video that was entitled, uh, A Message from the Gay Community. And I would actually encourage you uh, to go to YouTube uh, and find it uh, and and watch it for yourself. Uh. Watch it. Don't, don't complain about it. Uh, don't try it to get it uh, taken down. Uh, the video was uh, initially posted, and it created such a, a large uproar uh, that the video was made private for a time, and then it was uh, reposted publicly and a little explanation uh, given regarding the contents of the video. But I, but I, I would encourage you to, to go and watch it because I, I hope that you would just see this for yourself. The the video uh, begins with a single uh, man on the the screen, uh, and he states that this is a a message uh, intended uh, to all of those who uh, are working against equal rights. And then he transitions uh, into singing the following lyrics. He says, uh, or he sings, You think we're sinful. You fight against our rights. You say we all lead lives you can't respect, but you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids and if our agenda goes unchecked. And then he says, It's funny, just this once, you're correct. He says, We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. it says you can keep them from disco warn about san frisco make him wear pleated pants we don't care we'll convert your children we'll make them tolerant and fair uh, and then from there there's a, that line uh, is repeated over and over again of we'll convert your children uh, and the, the video transitions uh from that that single man on the the camera on the screen to to two guys uh and then from there it kind of zooms out and the the whole uh, San Francisco gay uh men's chorus uh, each has a little screen and there's you know 100 or so screens uh there on on the video uh, and over and over again they say Will convert your children. Another line as well says, "We're coming for your children," uh, and you can imagine this. This created quite uh, the uproar. Uh, and so, in the statement underneath the video, uh, what you'll see is that the, the video was described and released by this choir as a satirical, tongue-in-cheek video. Uh, they're just joking. It's all a big joke. Uh, and the I uh, would say that the video is neither satirical or uh, tongue in cheek, uh, the uh, this video brought this proverb to mind. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, "I was only joking." I think that's the the idea here. This is a a bold and brazen proclamation. It's it's an arrogant and it's a very boastful taunt directed towards parents. They are announcing their plan and daring us to stop them. Now, back when I was playing football in, in high school and college, that was like the ultimate taunt. Okay? If I were to, as the quarterback, were to, to come up to the line of scrimmage uh, with my opponents right there lined up against me, and I were to say, hey, we're going to run the ball right here, and there's nothing that you can do to stop us. I'll tell you what we're going to do, and you still won't be able to do anything. That's the ultimate taunt. And that's what is being presented to us here. We now live in a world where this kind of taunt is acceptable, where it's cheered on. Uh, and people actually believe this is, it's all just a, a joke. It's all just fun, tongue-in-cheek. Tongue in the pressure that this exerts upon us and upon our children... We now live in this society. And the pressure is intended to be exactly as it was described uh, by this chorus, right? Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. And, and for most of the culture, I would say it has not been noticed. It has flown under the radar for about the last 30 years. If you want to read a very interesting uh, essay, uh, go and Google it. Uh, an essay called After the Ball. Uh, It was an essay written by two uh, homosexual advertising executives back in the late 1980s. And in that essay, they outline how they will uh, change the American culture to get Americans to accept homosexuality. It's phenomenal uh, in terms of making sense of this world. Scary and sobering in how successful they have been in the late 1980s, and you read this now, and they have, uh, they have knocked down all of the dominoes that they set out to. But this is the, the pressure that we live in, and, and most of the culture has not recognized it. But as Christians, we, we must recognize it. We have to recognize that this is now the world that we are living in and the pressure that we face. We don't see it initially, But it is pressing in upon us. And how are we to respond to this sort of pressure? A pressure where uh, prideful and arrogant people uh, announce their plans to to come after us and our families, and then they seek to carry it out. How are we to respond to this attempted transformation of our culture and the subversion of our children? Well, ours is not the first generation in the church. We are not the first generation of God's people to, to deal with these types of pressures. And, and the psalm that we are going to, to read this morning uh, is a psalm that teaches us how to pray as a people who are under pressure. See, David is writing this psalm uh, as a man on the run. As we'll see, David is uh, in this psalm being chased by an unnamed individual, being persecuted and, and pursued and pressured, fearing for his life, as people are, are surrounding and plotting against him. And I think we will be able to to see how we should pray in response to the pressures that we face based upon what David outlines for us here. And I, I would invite you to, to read along with me. We're going to read through all 15 verses of this psalm. The psalm begins with a, a title, a prayer of David. He says, "'Hear a just cause, O Lord.'" "'Attend to my cry. "'Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. "'From your presence let my vindication come. "'Let your eyes behold the right. "'You have tried my heart. "'You have visited me by night. "'You have tested me, and you will find nothing. "'And I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. "'With regard to the works of man,' By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps and they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's just pause and pray. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We thank you for the trustworthiness of your character. Father, I ask that you would now lead us and guide us, that you would open our eyes to behold the truths of your word, that you would illumine our minds to comprehend the weight of your truth. We pray that you would soften our hearts to apply your truth to every aspect of our lives, no matter what the cost of our obedience. We pray also that you would encourage our souls as we behold your character, as we behold your track record of faithfulness to your people. And may you realign our hearts so that we set our hope firmly upon you. Even as we sing, Lord, help us to, uh, for, guess, to realign our hearts so that you are all to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we study this psalm, David is, is praying to God because even though he is innocent, uh, even though uh, he is blameless, he is being persecuted. He is being pursued by this unnamed individual, more than likely King Saul. Uh, and if you, if you think about it, there is a, a certain amount of pressure that comes upon your life if the king is coming after you, right? That, that creates problems and situations. Uh, and he is feeling this pressure. Uh, and he offers up this prayer under pressure to God, asking for God to intervene and to act in his situation. Now, now you and I don't have a king coming after us. Uh, it's actually uh, our entire culture. Uh, the bigger, larger uh, society is starting to, to place their, their hand and pressure Upon us, leading us and guiding us in a certain direction uh, to align ourselves and conform ourselves into their image rather than according to the image of Christ. And so, what we're going to see is how we ought to pray uh, as a people under pressure. But when we feel this pressure from the world, how should we pray? How should we respond in faith? as David writes this prayer, he's going to to alternate between uh, making prayers and petitions to God and then making declarations to God. He's going to make requests, and then he's going to make some some statements. Uh, And each of his declarations uh, is going to be a a support or an explanation to what he is praying and why he is praying. Uh, And so you could divide this psalm into three portions. Each one begins with a prayer. Uh, and then it has that declaration and that explanation uh, that follows after it. And what we're going to see in these three divisions are three ways that we can pray when we face the pressure and persecution from the world around us. Now, and the first way that we can pray is found in verses 1 through 5. We can say this, that in our innocence, we can pray for vindication. If you look at me at verses 1 and 2, you see David praying for vindication. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So David begins his prayer to God by asking to be heard. All right, A threefold repetition of this idea. Hear, attend, give ear. Just crying out to God. Please hear me. And he doesn't just want God to to hear him and then move on. He's crying out saying, Hear me, God, and respond. Answer, don't leave me in the situation that I am in. Bring me out of this situation and draw me near to you. Bring me out of this. The verse 2 then describes the specific predicament that David is in. Now he is unjustly persecuted and maligned and attacked. He says, From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. God, I know that I need help, and I know I'm being attacked and maligned and persecuted, but I, I can't fix this. I need you to act, God. And he entrusts his vindication in this situation. It's not a a just try harder to to fix the situation, David. No, he's crying out to God, asking God uh, to vindicate him and and to bring justice to the situation, which is, when you think about it, a very bold claim to make. Because if you're going to, to pray for justice and truth to win out, what do you have to be very sure of? That you're the innocent party. Uh, Which is why David, in the declaration that he makes following this prayer, he proclaims his innocence. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. Now, in those first couple of lines in verse 3, we have two big pictures that David is pointing to that prove and demonstrate his his innocence. The, the first picture that David uses is the idea of metal being refined, right? You, you put gold and silver into uh, a, a molten, you know... Uh, I'm I'm not a blacksmith, so I'm losing my my terms here. But if you melt it down, uh, the impurities will will rise to the top, uh, and you scrape them away. And that's the idea here. And David is saying, God, you have melted me down. You have purified. You have tried and tested me, and you know there's no impurities in me that are the reason for my persecution right now. The first picture that David gives is the idea of metal being refined. And and the second illustration, the idea that he presents, is the idea of being investigated. Right? He says, God, you have visited me by night. The idea is making a, a careful inspection. God, you have searched the depths of my heart and you have found nothing. And within this, David is not saying that he is completely sinless. That's not the idea here. The idea is that he is steadfast that he has followed God faithfully. So when he has sinned, what has he done? He's confessed it and repented of it. And he's saying the reason I'm being attacked and persecuted now is not a result of his sin, but it's a result of those uh, his enemy pursuing him and pressuring him. And verses 4 and 5 highlight God's guidance of David in this process. With regard to the works... Of man, I'm sorry, I skipped that last verse or the last line in verse three, which is very important. So you, David uses these these two illustrations. In that last line of verse three, he says, "I have purposed in my mouth that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped." And you know, the idea here that, that David is, is pointing to is that he has walked faithfully with God. And how has he done that? He's avoided the, the paths of uh, the, the violent, the ways of the violent, uh, by walking according to the word of God. It's not choosing his own path and and doing his own thing. He's walking according to what God has commanded, and that is what has been uh, the guiding force in David's life and helped him to avoid those things. And and also notice the the totality of what uh, David is saying regarding his innocence. Uh, David speaks about his own heart. He says, my heart, God, you've tried it and tested it. It's clean. Uh, God, I have made a commitment uh, with my mouth that my mouth will not transgress. Now, and he says, "My steps have walked faithfully only on your path uh, and and the idea there of a that path that David is walking on is the idea of a a rut in the road that has been worn uh, out because it's been traveled upon so frequently. Uh, For those of you who were here uh, in uh, 2017 for the winter of snowmageddon, uh, this is what your neighborhood looked like after six weeks of snow and never being plowed, right? Uh, Because everyone was driving uh, and it's never being plowed. So you're, you're melting the ice, crushing it down, and then overnight what happens? is it freezes. So there's tire tracks uh, in the middle of the road. Uh, and if you're close to the tire tracks, what happens? Your car just kind of slides into it. And you're like, okay, this is the track that I'm running on. Like I thought I was in a, uh, a car, not a, uh, a railroad. Uh, and so, but this is what was happening. That's the idea of David is saying, uh, I have walked over and over again the well-worn path that God has established in his word. And this is very important. David takes the time to defend his innocence. He is praying persuasively. God, you need to answer this prayer for these reasons. Because I am innocent. Vindicate me because I am the innocent party here. I am not guilty. And David is very familiar and realizes that his innocence matters tremendously. His guilt or innocence in this matter will impact how God hears his prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says this If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. David realizes that. You, you can't pray for vindication while at the same time being guilty. Praying for vindication only works if you are the innocent party. Some of you might remember uh, an incident that took place uh, back in January of 2019. Uh, where a, a television actor named Justice Smollett, uh, he's an Afri- African-American man on the show Empire, uh, he, he made a report to the police that he was the victim of a hate crime. He said that uh, he had grabbed some some sandwiches and was walking down the, the street in Chicago uh, when uh, two men came at him, uh, black men with Make America Great uh, Again hats, uh, and they, they attacked him, they, they, they beat him, uh, they insulted him, uh, and uh, he, he went to the police with this. He was interviewed on Good Morning America, and he sat there with, with Robin Robertson and, and described what, what took place. Uh, but, but the police continued to just ask some questions and to and investigate. Uh, and there were all of these discrepancies with what he was saying, uh, like the time and uh, what they were wearing and just all of these things. And, and it eventually was revealed that he made all of this up. And he did it for media attention to try and advance his acting career, right? The, the truth will only help you if it is uh, you are innocent, right? If you are a guilty party, uh, the truth is not going to, to help you. It's going to condemn you. And David realizes that. You know, Mr. Uh, Smollett ended up being uh, charged by the Chicago Police Department with disorderly conduct and filing a false police report which carries a sentence of at least a year, Uh, and then a grand jury indicted him with 16 other counts. So what he sought to do uh, ended up backfiring. Vindication and justice are only helpful when we are honest and innocent. So at the outset of this psalm, as David approaches God in prayer, Praying for vindication, but we can only pray as David prayed. We can only pray for vindication when we feel pressure from the world. If we are blameless before men, now if we have guilt uh, and we are uh, responding or we are experiencing pressure from the world because of things that we have done, that's not persecution. That's prosecution. Uh, there's a, there's a, a tremendous difference there. But all of this. Shows if if we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, the importance of examining our hearts, even as David did, right? Examining our hearts, examining our mouths, examining our steps. Am I blameless in this situation? Have I done something to contribute to the pressure that I am experiencing? And, And if we realize that there is something that we have done, we should confess before God and man and we should repent. Ask for forgiveness. But if we are truly innocent, if we we examine our hearts and our mouths and our steps and and we see this is not a result of something that I have done, this truly is not prosecution, it is persecution, then then here's the next step that's really difficult. Entrust your vindication to God. Not, I'm going to vindicate myself. But he says, God, let my vindication come from your presence self-vindication rarely works and it usually leads to conflict, right? How does that work when you and your spouse are in an argument and you want to vindicate that you are right? Does that lead to a resolution of hostilities or does that amplify the hostilities usually, right? Uh, you, we end up going on crusades when we need to, to step back and allow God to vindicate in so many situations. And that's, that's true in a microcosm in our homes and in an even greater sense before the pressures of the world. We need to allow time and truth to reveal uh, the nature of our character and the nature of certain ideas and ideologies that are out there in the world. And this is the first way that we can pray when we face pressure. We can pray for vindication from God, for the truth will be revealed in His time and in His way. And then there's a second way that we can pray when facing pressure. It's found in verses 6 through 12. And in our distress, we can pray... For preservation. Now look at me at verses 6 through 8. That, that's where we will find David's prayer for preservation in the middle of his circumstances. He says, God, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to hear me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, all of this be- begins with, with David in verse 6, having a certainty that if he cries to God, that God will hear and answer. Oftentimes, that's the first barrier to our prayers, right? If we are not convinced that God's going to hear and respond, what do we do? Nothing. Nothing. We don't pray. Our motivation to pray is in response to a conviction that God will hear and respond to our petitions according to his will. And David has that conviction, so he turns to God and pleads with him again to be heard and answered. And then, verse 7, the the petition at the beginning of verse 7 really is the focal point of the psalm. It is the main prayer request that David brings to God. He says, Wondrously show. Your steadfast love. Now, the idea there is that God will show and, and amaze and reveal himself and his character by doing what? How, how does God reveal his steadfast love? Well, he does that by repeatedly saving and rescuing his people in their moments of distress. Now, now the, what, the language that David uses here is very intentional... Uh, And it points back to something in Exodus. So I'd like you to keep your finger here in Psalm 17 and turn with me back to Exodus 15. What we're turning to in the book of Exodus is a song. Uh, It it is a a worship song that David would have been familiar with, even as we are familiar with the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. Uh, It is a song that, that recalls how Yahweh the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kept his covenant promises, and he rescued the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them uh, out of it into the promised land. If you look at the very beginning of Exodus 15, now you'll see the title is the Song of Moses. Now, and look with me at verses 11 through 13. And there's going to be three key words from psalm 17 verse 7 that appear in verses 11 through 13 verse 11 says who is like you O lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome in glorious deeds doing there's one of our words wonders how did god reveal himself in the exodus event with wonders with 10 plagues and with parting the red sea Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. There's another one of our words. And the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love. There's our third and final word. The people whom you have redeemed and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So this is, this is what David is saying here in Psalm 17. He's not praying to God in isolation and just saying, God, can you just help me this one time? He's saying, no, God, continue to do what you have always done. Continue to be the God who is faithful to all of his covenants, who always keeps his word, and save and rescue me. Reveal yourself in a saving way and rescue me now in the same way that you revealed yourself through wonders during the Exodus. That's what David is praying and asking for. But then David continues to to add to these requests. Verse 8, a a familiar phrase uh, in our own uh, English vernacular, maybe not as well understood, but keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. So why does he say that? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Speaking of the, the pupil uh, in the eye, like why would, David, why would David make that request? You're like, what, what does he mean by that? Well, if, if you, you ever try and touch your eye, try and touch your pupil, what happens? What does your eye do to defend the pupil? It closes up. It guards it. If If there's danger, if something is, is approaching your eye, your eye will close. And if God keeps us as the apple of his eye, we're there. When danger approaches, what does God do? He blinks that eye. He closes us off from the danger. That's what David's request is. And he he adds uh, another illustration. He says, uh, again, a familiar uh, wording. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Which again, points back to something written by Moses. A previous experience of the nation of Israel. David is alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 and 11 which say this, He found him, speaking of God, towards Israel, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Again, David is is pointing back to the covenant faithfulness of God. God, continue to work and save as you always have, as your people have always trusted you to save them. Save me now. It's a rich theology here. David longs for this protection that God has offered and delivered to his people in their moments of distress. And so verses 6 through 8 are David's prayer, and he he follows that in verses 9 through 12 with a, a declaration of the danger that he is in. Says, keep me in verse eight. Hide me, verse nine. Then tells us what what is he requesting from the wicked who do me violence, by deadly enemies who surround me. David is, is asking God to to save and rescue him from these people who uh, have deadly and violent aims towards him. And then verse ten is a very kind of difficult verse to interpret because it's kind of an awkward saying. It's literally, they have shut or they have closed their fat. You're like, what does that mean? Right? Uh, and I think the ESV does a, a good job of, of translating, kind of capturing the idea. I think the, the idea is they have, they have closed themselves off. They are no longer teachable. They are no longer receptive. They have hardened their heart. Uh, and this idea is parallel with the, the second line of verse 10. Uh, what do they do with their mouths? They speak arrogantly. They taunt. They have plotted to surround David. Verse 11, they have now surrounded our steps and they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. And then David uses language like a a lion awaiting in ambush for his prey. God, this is what I'm going through right now. I am surrounded and they do not want to throw me a party. Uh, they have evil intentions, and they seek to destroy me. And what's amazing here is that David's, David's distress led him to pray, to be kept, to be preserved. And I think thinking and, and reflecting upon my own prayer life and, and the prayer life kind of with, within our growth group, and if you were to examine your own prayer life, how often do we pray for God to preserve us? How often do we do we cry out to God like this? God, keep me. Hide me. Guard me, preserve me. How often do we cry out to God to preserve others? I think there there's multiple reasons now we don't pray in this way, and, and the Psalms are really an instruction book on on prayer. Multiple reasons, but I think a, a very big reason that we don't pray as David prays here is that we are not distressed as David was in, at that time. You'd say, I'll put it in a unique way: we aren't as distressed as we should be. Like what? I thought I wasn't supposed to stress. That's not good. Uh, no, we should be distressed about some things. Uh, there are certain things in life, those things that really, truly matter, that we should express distress concerning. me say this, we are not properly distressed about Christians around the world who are facing violence, even as David describes here. I talked earlier, we are facing a certain amount of pressure, and we're not facing violence yet. But there are Christians around the world who are very much facing violence. In, in Nigeria, every couple of months, we hear stories uh, and reports about the terrorist group, Boko Haram, coming and doing what? Kidnapping young women, usually at a Christian school. Coming, kidnapping them, taking them away, forcing them to become wives forcing them to try and convert to Islam. And if they don't convert, what happens? Usually a lot of bad things. We're not properly distressed about those things. We're not properly distressed about our own cultural situation. Now, I began speaking about that, that men's chorus, and I think to a certain degree you can say, well, that's California. I left that behind intentionally, okay? Okay. Uh, like that's that's their problem. I came to Idaho. Well, let, let me let me share with you about a, a recent trip to the Nampa Public Library. My family and I went to go get library cards. This is the summer reading list for ages birth to preschool. Okay. Some of these book recommendations on this reading list are what you would expect to find, right? A book in, books entitled This is a Book of Shapes Me and Mama and Future Doctor but there were, there were other books on this reading list that caught my attention The Anti-Racist Baby Another one We are Little Feminists on the go Another one The Hips on the Drag Queen go swish, swish, swish This is not distant from us. The pressure is here. And if we don't quite realize what we are surrounded by and with, we we tend to not be distressed. We tend not to cry out to God for Him to work, for Him to act, when we really should be praying. Because how was it described in that satirical video? Quietly, subtly, you'll hardly even notice it. These are the things that we have to be aware of and we should be properly distressed about. Because if we are properly distressed about it, what will we do? We'll pray. We'll cry out to God as David cries out to God. Lord, there are people surrounding us trying to, to influence not just us, not just us who may have some, some discernment and can see the ambush as it's being laid, who may be able to say, there's a lion over there. Let's not go that way. But reading list, what was the age? Birth to preschool. We need to be distressed about the right things. We need to be distressed about those things that truly matter. We can also say this. What we grow distressed about also says a lot about our hearts and our worship, right? If we don't get distressed about things we should be distressed about, that means something. And if we get distressed about what we shouldn't be distressed about, that also means something. And in those moments when we are in distress and what do we turn to? Over and over again in the Psalms, a pattern is laid out for us. When the people of God are in distress, what should they do? They turn to the Lord in prayer. They cry out to Him. They say, God, hear and answer. Help us. But so often, I would venture to say that we turn to the people and things of this world To hide us. Escapism. Right? Overwhelmed by the things taking place, what do we do? Go turn our minds off. Go do some passive media where I don't have to to think and process, I can just receive. It's a strong temptation. But when we are in distress, we, we have to build a discipline and a habit to turn to god in prayer to lay forth all of our distresses to him to allow our vindication to come from him Well, we have to grow as a people of prayer as a people who are rightly distressed about things that truly matter we have to be convinced that god is a worthy refuge in our moments of distress right which is a simple question to ask Are you convinced that God is worthy, is a worthy shelter? That when you are feeling pressure, when you are feeling trials, when you're feeling disappointed in life, are you convinced that you can run to Him and should run to Him and that He is the greatest physician, the greatest counselor that you can run to in those moments? Lean upon Him. If we can hearken back to what we studied last Sunday in Psalm 16, what did David say in verse 8? I have set the Lord always before me. And what was the result? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We will be resistant to being staggered in our distress if we are continually turning to God and setting him before us. This is how we should pray. When in distress, we can pray for vindication, we can pray for preservation, and then thirdly, in verses 13 through 15, in our hope, we can pray for confrontation. If you look at verse 13, that's the the prayer in this portion. David says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Now this command or this prayer for God to arise it's re- repeated often in the psalms and it again it points back to numbers numbers chapter 10 verse 35 uh, where it is uh, introduced to us as the battle cry of the israelites when they were going off to battle this is what they would cry out numbers 10:35 says and whenever the ark set out moses said arise o yahweh and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Again, David is pointing back to that. and said, God, what you have promised, I'm, I'm going to hold you to. Arise, O Lord, and act right now. And think about the, the prayers that he, that he makes after that. Arise, O Lord. And then he says, confront and subdue. That, that's strong language, right? We're not used to language like this. The idea of confronting is, hey, get in his face. The idea of subduing is cause him to bow down. David is praying for the Lord to intervene in this person, uh, against this person who is pursuing and pressuring him. And David's last request in this prayer portion, he says, deliver my soul from the wicked. Save me. And also notice, what is the instrument that, that David requests? He says, God, save me, deliver me. And use the sword and it's not not popular in our day and age but sometimes we need to pray that way sometimes we we need to pray against false ideas, Uh, sometimes we need to to pray against evil in the world in that way, Lord do whatever you need to do to deal with this bring deliverance to your people because until evil is addressed there won't be any deliverance that's the only way that comes Confrontation of evil must take place. Great example of this back uh, leading up to World War II. Hitler is uh, in power in Germany, uh, and the prime minister of Great Britain, a man named Neville Chamberlain, he had this idea that if he just kept giving Hitler what he wanted, Hitler would eventually be satisfied and they could have peace. Very, Very famously, on September 30th, 1938, Neville Chamberlain uh, signed a what became known as the Munich Agreement with Hitler, in which he, in essence, signed off a huge amount of territory called the Sudetenland, which is a part of Czechoslovakia, and that was given to Germany uh, by the Allies of World War I to try and appease him. Uh, and Neville Chamberlain famously said, We have peace for our time. Trying to, to appease Hitler and less than a year later World War II. Peace for our time did not last very long. Evil men don't just disappear. Right? Hitler can you just be gone? That didn't work, right? It had to be confronted. It had to be dealt with. And that's the same for again false ideologies and philosophies. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5. Because for the weapons of our warfare are not not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that's what we must do. False ideologies don't just go away. And it's okay to pray for God to confront evil. And somehow we've kind of fallen into this other bad rut that we can't, we can't pray for God to, to make things right. I know we need to. And after making his prayer, David then makes his declaration, this time a declaration of hope. If you look at verses 14 and 15. So David is requesting, and he says, Deliver my soul from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Verse 14 is, is setting up and establishing uh, who th- these men are. So there's that one particular individual who's a, the leader of a, a moor who are conspiring and plotting against David. And David is praying, and uh, he's, he says, uh, well, the language of verse 14 is actually very, very confusing. It's very hard to to translate, and you can see this across. If you read multiple translations of this, you'll see a a variety of ways of interpreting this. But I think that the best way uh, is by seeing that David is describing the men that he's seeking deliverance from. He says, "From men by your hand," Uh, and it's an interesting word for men there because it's really the, the the root word is is death. The idea that these are dead men; these are these are mortals. Lord, save me from the men of this world whose hope, whose portion is in this world. God, rescue me from them. He says, God uh, has blessed them. He says, you fill their womb with treasure. God has blessed them in his common grace, which he bestows upon all men. And he describes these men, he says, they they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Uh, And some of you may be thinking, well, well, what's wrong with that? Right? Children are a tremendous blessing. Absolutely, They are a gift from God. But the, the satisfaction that children bring is fleeting. It is not final. Okay? And, and what David is describing here, he says children satisfy their hearts. But there's a contrast that's going to be made in verse 15. And ultimately, children are, are wonderful gifts, but they are terrible idols. Right, they, they, they won't satisfy in the way that God can. And they were never intended to do. And so David contrasts these men who leave their abundance as an inheritance to their children, and yet they lack one really big thing. And that's a relationship with God. That is absent. And, and one, one pastor says, uh, that in and of itself is a judgment. To have everything except God is a judgment because he is what we need most. And David contrasts himself to this source of satisfaction with these men. And this is where where we need to strive to be. This is where David ends intentionally. And this is why Psalm 17 is right after Psalm 16. Because Psalm 16 was about wholehearted devotion to God, and Psalm 17 lands in that same place. That even though in the middle of his distress, this is where David is going to find his rest and peace. And his assurance. Verse 15, as for me. So in contrast to those men of the world who are pursuing him. He says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Like what is David saying there? Is he, is he saying this when he's going to bed at night? And he's saying when I wake up, I'll, I'll see God in the morning. No. David is speaking about when he awakens from death. When he passes from this life into the next, he has a hope and an assurance. That is where he finds his satisfaction. That when he is resurrected after death, he will be in the presence of God. That he will see and behold God, and that is where he will find his satisfaction. Brings to mind First John chapter three verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. All of this, and again, this declaration of David's hope explains why he makes that prayer. Now, David can pray for God to to confront. Uh, and it's always according to God's will. Be. And where is David's hope and peace? Even if God doesn't confront, David will still be satisfied. Even if God doesn't deal uh, with perfect justice in this life at that time, David's still going to be satisfied because he's entrusting himself to God. That's where we should live. Right? We should pray for Confrontation. We should pray for wisdom and, and how to address situations. But ultimately, we can find peace because our ultimate hope is not in this life. Nothing in this world is going to satisfy us, but God will. Our greatest satisfaction is not found in anyone or anything in this life. Our greatest satisfaction is to be found in Jesus the one who was crucified and resurrected on our behalf, the one whom we remembered even as we partook of the Lord's table this morning, right? We are recalling and remembering what He has done on our behalf and that one day we will be with Him. What We are announcing and proclaiming our hope every time we partake of the Lord's Supper together. And if we... If we're going to commit ourselves to knowing and following Him, which is ultimately where we will find our satisfaction, if we commit ourselves to following Christ, then we are going to also experience pressure from the world around us. It's a guarantee. Then how do we respond to that pressure? Well, as we've seen here, we've been instructed on how we ought to pray. That we can pray for our vindication to come from God Himself. We can pray for ourselves and others to be preserved under that pressure and we can pray that false ideologies and evil men will be confronted and dealt with as God sees fit and we can find our ultimate hope and rest and satisfaction uh, in the one who has saved us the one whom we will be with the perfect one who promises us forgiveness, reconciliation and resurrection that's what Jesus promises us Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned last week, is making those 70 resolutions. Uh, As a a father, uh, he had a daughter named Jerusha. And Jerusha was characterized by a great love for the Lord. And as a teenager, uh, there was a a missionary that came uh, to live with uh, the Edwards family. So Jerusha's just a a teenager, and this missionary named David Brainerd comes. Uh, He is in the process of dying of tuberculosis, or consumption as it was known back then. And she ministers to him for months leading up to his death, and they developed such a close uh, friendship that they actually got engaged even though he was about to die. David Brainerd died in October of 1747 at the age of 29, and just four months later to Russia Edwards at the age of 17 caught a fever and died within a week and just imagine how, how you walk through that as a parent, right? And if your ultimate satisfaction is in children it's, it's going to be hard but her parents buried her next to Brainerd and on her gravestone her parents decided to engrave Psalm 17 verse 50 because they knew that when she awoke she would get to behold our savior she would get to behold the one who died for her and that's what they chose and they rejoiced in that reality but all of this bears a whole lot of reflection but also one big question Do you have that same hope? Do you have that hope? Is your greatest hope seeing your Lord and Savior when you awake from this life? I pray that it is. And we can rejoice in the hope that we have no matter how much distress that we face. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.